Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hi everyone, welcome to The Next Normal in collaboration with America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. And I couldn't be more thrilled to spend this hour with you in deep dive and in collaboration. This energy out there right now where you, me, all of us, there's a feeling in the soul. I need to learn more about what's going on. I don't want to be like a little guinea pig out there just getting stomped on and stepped on and beaten up or slapped. We won't talk about slaps. But the whole thing is that deep down inside, we really need to learn more about the soul and the essence of who we are. And maybe we are also moving towards an interpretation and an understanding that we're actually here to live large. When I say large, it doesn't mean a Rolls Royce, a Rolex watch, or Hermes clothes. Might not be too bad of an idea. But I mean large in your spirit. That there's this ability to love so big and to forgive so big. There's the ability to make an error and the humility to say sorry. There's the ability to believe in something bigger than you could ever imagine and just play with it and enjoy it. That's what I love about our time together. The next normal is all about stepping out of your box and stepping into a new one. It's been a lot for me and I've loved every minute of it. And I will continue to love every minute of it. And I hope that you have been too. You know about my new book that's out, right? The meditation book. Have you gotten your copy yet? If you have not gotten a copy yet, and I'm not doing a promo or a sales pitch, but I'm telling you, it really is a comforting read. And it's all about bringing the awareness of your mystical experiences to the forefront of your life. Each person that has an awakening changes forever. And each of the 37 authors that traveled with me had an awakening, and they changed forever. Their connection between their souls and God is definitely shared in the book and just things manifested in ways that were beyond their wildest dreams. My special guest today, Catherine Ford, is someone that I'm looking very forward to to having a heart-to-heart chit-chat. Let's talk a little bit and introduce her a little bit because there's a quote that's attributed to Ram Dass that goes, if you think you're enlightened, go spend some time with your family. And from the moment we're born and throughout our lives, we experience relationships. Today, we're going to discuss challenges in these connections with our family, friends, and work relationships. Our guest today is Catherine Ford, MD. Catherine specializes in relationships of all kinds and has been practicing psychotherapy in private practice for more than 20 years. Through the method she developed, Aperture Awareness, Catherine guides others in staying in the present moment, which she explains is the key to a successful relationship. It's where the learning and the growth takes place. She leads workshops for therapists and individuals throughout Stanford, continuing studies. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Catherine Ford. Catherine, I can't wait for us to get right into our conversation. 
And thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sister Jenna. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me to share this with your audience. So tell me a little bit how you got involved with psychotherapy and relationships. I've kind of always thought that relationship was the most important thing. I think even when I was a young girl, the part of life that seemed the most interesting to me was when two people were talking or when people were interacting with each other. And it was very clear that sometimes there was an energy there that was quite exciting and interesting, and other times there wasn't. And I think I was rather intrigued by that. And uh, of course, like most people, the first relationships I observed were my family. And from that, I think I took away two things. One is that these relationships are very important. I watched people urgently wanting to communicate with each other and sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing. And so what I saw is that it matters a lot to connect to each other, and it's not always easy. And so Mm -hmm. as I headed off in the direction of being a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist, I quickly started paying attention to the relationship part of things and actually developed a bit of a bias that my training and the training of therapists in general overly Mm -hmm. emphasizes individual therapy and that we need to focus more on helping people with their relationships. So tell me, what is it that makes relationships so strained? Why is it that we're absolutely perfect on our own, but when we come into connection with each other, we see always room for improvement? Or what is that block or veil that comes in between making relationships easy to manage? Yeah, we want very much to connect to each other, and actually we need very much to connect to each other. Even at the physiologic level, what we've learned from our science and our neuroscience is that we even need each other to regulate our basic physiologic systems. Lots of research shows that our cardiovascular systems are partly regulated by our interactions with each other, our immunological systems, lots of things like that. So we want connection with each other. We need connection with each other. And yet it's frightening. And we kind of scare each other. You think about it. You walk into a room full of strangers like at a party or something, and you feel kind of nervous. You're going to give a talk on a radio show and you feel kind of nervous because contact with other human beings can be both exciting and enticing and we need it. And also it can feel rather frightening and it tends to stimulate the part of our brain that goes into fight, flight, freeze. And so we're constantly, the big riddle in life that I think we're constantly solving for is how do we get the kind of connection we want with each other in a way that doesn't cause us too much injury or too much anxiety. I would also add, when you said we feel like we're perfect on our own, I actually also think that we kind of scare ourselves. And I think that the starting place for connecting with each other really is connecting with ourselves. And I think we also find that rather intimidating. And I think that's part of why it's very hard for us to do it. And part of why sometimes we intend to sit down and meditate, but actually we decide to do something else because it's not that comfortable sometimes to encounter what's actually inside of us. Yeah, it does take a lot for us to have the courage and maybe the wisdom to accept that whatever we've become is fine, but there's always going to be room for improvement. And I think that sometimes the ego or the attachment to our past blocks the soul's ability to see what's getting in the soul's way. And time and time again, I've seen even for myself, as much as I know I'm a soul, And I know the original nature of the soul is love and peace and purity. And I know I'm imperishable, immortal, and eternal. But one thought comes and I totally forget all of that. 
And before I know it, I'm caught up in something else that's sort of taking me away from my virtues and my divinity. But that's what the journey is all about, isn't it? It's all about the ups and downs, the ins and outs. If it was completely perfect, I think would be bored to death. So let's talk about your method that's called Aperture Awareness. Can you explain a little bit more mm-hmm. to our friends and family on air? Yeah. As I started to help people with their relationships, I began to try to tune into, so what was it that would make me more effective? Of course, that when you're a therapist, you're constantly trying to figure out how to be more effective with people that you're helping. I should say also that part of how this emerged for me was when I came to Stanford for my psychiatry training, I was immersed in that program, but I also began to be immersed in practices like yoga and meditation. Stanford is in California. So it was a great place to encounter these kinds of practices. And so I began to meditate. I began to do yoga, which took me into the realm of a lot of focus on the present moment. So what I brought into my clinical work in the beginning was both the clinical training I'd had, the theories, the models, attachment theory, psychodynamic theory, et cetera, but also a great deal of emphasis on paying attention to what's happening right now. And as I observed, what was happening in the moment between two people, it seemed to me that everything was possible or not possible based on whether or not there was an open channel between them and that the openness to each other kind of was the starting place for everything. If you think about it, everything that we want from each other doesn't happen if we're close to each other and does happen if we're open. So I began to work with people along the lines of getting them open with the assumption that whatever it was they were wanting, whether they were wanting to feel loved, understood, solve a problem together, all of that was going to happen best if they were open to each other. And I began to work with that. And soon I began to call that aperture. What I mean by aperture is emotional aperture. It's similar to, in a positive way, we say, open your heart. Aperture is really the openness of your heart for connection, and it's a constantly changing dynamic connection between two people, in groups of people also. And so that's what I mean by aperture, and it's something that's varying in the moment. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you come to a relationship thinking, well, I'm open to you, as if it's a static thing, but in fact, varying moment to moment as we're talking to people. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting what you're saying about the aperture is, That is all that's needed for relationships to flow pretty well are open hearts, but our hearts aren't always open because we've been hurt by so many experiences of the past. And you can never blame being hurt on love. You can blame being hurt based on the attachment in the soul and how that attachment interpreted the event. Now, there's no doubt that there are certain people out there that really do awful things to one another, and that's a separate story. But there's something that you do talk about, which is the power of really good listening. And becoming a great listener is the key to those amazing moments when two people can connect with open hearts and open minds. I took your listening test, and it turned out that I was actually a very, very good listener. And I expected that, by the way. But I would love for you to elaborate on this first. What does it mean to be a great listener? And how does this help our emotional connection? Yeah, we need to always remember to be curious. I try to teach people and myself that at the moment that you feel yourself closing, remember your curiosity. There are all kinds of things that get in the way of that. When we're interacting with each other, lots of different reactions get stimulated, and we forget to be curious. So for sure, it starts with being curious. 
it also starts with this thing of noticing what's in the way. I say everything starts really with noticing your own aperture. The best way to have a connection with somebody is for them to be open to you, and the best way for them to be open to you is for you to be open to them. So being a good listener means paying attention to what's in the way and remembering to go towards curiosity and remembering to go towards the conversation where it's less of a debate and more of a dialogue and more of a discovery together. Too often we think of our conversations in adversarial terms instead of friendship terms. And what that means is we're looking for, I have something that I hold inside of me, you have something you hold inside of you, and it's kind of a drag and drop. I'm going to tell you what I think, you're going to tell me what you think, and then we're going to spend a few minutes deciding who's right or whose idea is better. And that's such a limited conversation, and we often find ourselves in that kind of conversation without even realizing it. So a different kind of conversation is the conversation that we call dialogue, where really it starts with me saying what I bring to the conversation, you saying what you bring to the conversation, but then the goal is to go looking for what neither one of us knew before we started talking. So we're trying to discover something together that's new, and that involves curiosity, it involves openness. And it's very much helped by not identifying with a particular idea. One of my favorite teachers about dialogue, Michael Kahn, um, wrote a lovely little book, The Tao of Conversation. And in that, he talks about the importance of not owning a position. That if I put an idea on the table, that's an idea for us to work with together, not for me to work with and you to challenge. And too often we fall into that kind of polemic of, I challenge your ideas, you challenge my ideas, and hopefully we see if they stand the test as opposed to mutually developing each other's ideas. Let me jump in here, Catherine. So have you done investigation as to why majority of us in the world tend to be so attached to our interpretations and ideas that we don't practice curiosity and we don't really hear the heart of someone For example, if I'm listening to you and you're sharing something with me, I think the first thing for me that comes up is the vibrational frequency in what you're saying, which means, what's the reason for you to be telling me this? What's the energy that I have between you and me? Is there something in which I've often felt I just don't trust you? And so anything you say, I really take it with a grain of salt. And I'm very, very cautious to even follow, even try to adapt to what you're saying. Now, is the trust true because I don't really trust that person, or is that my own trust issues? Yes. Often, two people have to figure out where things are coming from. Part of what's really cool about us is that we're very open to each other, and we are open channels. And part of the dilemma of that is that sometimes when I'm feeling something, I can't tell. Is it my heart that's closed or your heart that's closed? And usually, it's a combination of both. And so in a really good dialogue, if two people sense that there's something in the way, they're working together to figure out where is this coming from. And going back to what you originally said, why do we get so attached to our own ideas? I think we get very nervous in the territory of not knowing and somehow decided that best we can do is to know things. This comes up in all relationships, that what we're supposed to bring to the table, to the relationship, especially in work relationships, this can come up where the value of us is determined by what we know. Mm-hmm. And I would say we need to flip that. The value of us is determined by our ability to get comfortable with not knowing 
and to go exploring with each other in this open kind of way that presumes that we're going to find something we didn't know, and that presumes that learning is a great thing. And we get very nervous when we learn because it, we tend to interpret that that it implies that somehow we didn't already know something. But I like um, that. I mean, you just mentioned about work relationships, and maybe I'm just biased, but I think I have the best team in the world. <laughs> I think I'm biased. But, I mean, there are times when we run in a little bump on the road, especially when somebody new comes into our system of working, when there's a new person in the vibration. And sometimes I find that the new energy really throws off the team. And where they really know what to do and they know how to do things, this person comes in with a whole different vibration. But more than anything else, I've observed that they're tuning into I don't feel this person understands our vision. Or I don't feel that this person understands the intent and the hard work that we put in to sustain the vision or to sustain the assignment or the project. So you find that they start getting to a really lack of aperture. And they don't actually see that. And yet they're more caught up in what's going on with the person, the this and that. So what are some of the most common challenges that people come to you about? And... What would you say is one of the best contributions that folks that work together can offer each other to make working a pleasant experience? Well, the situation that you talked about, of course, happens all the time in the workplace, that a team is trying to integrate a new member or two teams are trying to integrate to a new entity that involves all of them. And yes, we tend to become very attached to our ways of doing things, and especially in a well-functioning team, there's a sense of, okay, we've got it figured out. We know how to do this. Everybody knows their role. And so if a new person comes in, quite naturally, that whole system has to reintegrate, which means that everybody needs to loosen their attachment to how they're doing it, both individually and how the team is doing it, and make a space to understand what does this new person bring and how do we work with that. And that involves an openness to being a different team. So there's a little bit of grieving there because if you've got it spinning nice and wonderful and you feel like, oh, we've got this, we're great, you're going to go through a period where you don't feel so balanced for a while. You don't feel so competent for a while. And that's not an easy thing to to go into. And inviting that in is really important. And sometimes people resist that. You know, you're throwing us off. We had our group. And if you can open up to the idea that there's going to be a period of disorientation and of regrouping. I often feel like learning involves, um, in chemistry, there's this concept where if you try to dissolve a solid in a liquid, a crystal forms, and then you put in some warm liquid and you stir it up and the crystal dissolves and reforms. And I think we're like that in terms of our learning. There are crystal phases where it's kind of, everything is perfect and we've got it all lined up and the team is good. And then there are these other phases of going into dissolution. And when you're going into a phase of dissolution and opening up the space for something new to come in, it's very uncomfortable. The phase of crystallization is very comfortable. We feel like we know, we've got it, we we know how to proceed, and we like that feeling. We don't like the feeling of being uncertain, of being unknowing, and yet it's the most productive state that we have. And once we kind of figure that out, it's a little easier to be open to it. And that has a lot to do with what goes on at work. It me how we continue to move into so many phases of 
refining and making ourselves better. It's almost as if the universe and the drama is conspiring to make it that way, that things will consistently come in front of you and me and everyone else out there to actually make you better if you're willing to let go of the attachment to the old way. And the attachment automatically will feed into the ego. And before you know it, it's just become your nature and you do think that you're always right. And at the same token, you know that there's always a better way to do things from a place of intention that the person's heart can feel what you're trying to communicate. So let's talk about friendships. What are the most common problems that you hear about and how can they use more aperture awareness? Yes. Friendships are really tricky. It's funny, as they sort of sit in the background of our awareness sometimes, we think in terms of our spouse or our family or even our work relationships, but friendships are an awfully important part of life and sometimes the most challenging. They don't have the same kind of social structure supporting them that, for instance, our families do, even our, our couple. You know, we have a marriage ceremony, but friends don't have marriage ceremonies, or generally they don't. And so they sit out there totally dependent on a choicefulness in each moment of are you going to continue the friendship or not. And they're extremely vulnerable. They're extremely vulnerable also to challenge from these other more codified relationships. I often hear friends talk about that they're very, very close to each other. And yet when it comes to a holiday gathering, they're going to go off and be with their families who they actually enjoy less well. They would prefer to be with each other. And sometimes that can be a problem, for instance, if one friend has a very big family and they're going off to spend holidays with them and the other friend doesn't have a family, let's say the family is far away or something, and they can feel rather abandoned and suddenly relegated to second class, even though their friend spends all the time with them when it's not the holiday. So friendships are very vulnerable to these kinds of challenges, and yet they're very important to us. And we have to keep working it out with our friends. The envy part of friendships is a very big deal, and we're very uncomfortable about that. And friends are constantly having to work with the comparison aspect of their relationship in ways that in families, again, you have certain structures that wrongly or rightly help you feel comfortable with certain things. In a family, siblings are ordered. So if one sibling behaves in a kind of bossy way that they're taking over all the time, you say, well... She's the oldest, so that's the way she is, and that's the way we expect her to be, right? But in friendship, there's not that same kind of automatic differentiation, and you're constantly figuring out who's better at this particular task, who's the stronger in this other way, and having to be very humble and very generous and accepting with each other about the differences. If I have a great job and you're currently out of work, then you may feel envious of my job, but I may feel guilty about your not being able to find a job. And so these kinds of tugs and pulls pull at friendships. And there are places where if we pay attention, we're constantly working out this thing of how to combine and help each other in the least injurious, uncomfortable way. I was thinking about my friends and how I value and cherish them, and I'm very much myself with them. Mm -hmm. And Even when we have disagreements and if I'm in the wrong, I process what I've been through and what I just said to them or what I did. I remember one time we were together having a meeting for a project we were working on and I'm a vegetarian and some of them have tried it but maybe didn't succeed and 
One day we were just sitting at the table as we were about to meet, and we were talking about a peace program. <laughs> and all of a sudden, out of my mouth, my role as the teacher came out, and not as a friend and realizing my role. Right. And I said, how can you guys be talking about peace and you're eating fish and chicken? They just turned and looked at me like, what? <laughs> and I remembered how I tried to justify what I said because I felt, but if you're doing work for peace, you shouldn't be eating meat. Right. And they looked at me like, you don't have any right to tell me what to eat or not to eat. Right. And I remembered going home feeling like, why would they eat meat if they're working on peace? And right. in my mind, I'm just going over and over. And then... When I got home, I finally realized, instead of being the friend, which the friend accepts all, shifted somewhere the role of the teacher and started to say that. So, okay, I'm vegetarian. Right. That's my choice. I love what I eat. And right. that's for me. And my friends accept that. They might find my food quite boring, but they don't argue with me and say, come on, take this pork down your throat. You know, right. they don't do that to me because they're not teaching me. So... I think sometimes we automatically shift into certain gears and forget who we are and what's the role that we're playing with each other. It happens all the time, but we're a work in progress. Please tell us about in what ways can our personal relationships sometimes affect our work relationships? Well, the starting place for that would be, of course, our relationships affect our whole lives. And Sometimes we think of work as kind of sealed in a little box and it's separate from everything else. And in fact, I think that's part of the problem with the workplace. And some people like Adam Grant are starting to look into how can we bring more of ourselves actually? So I would maybe flip it around and say, instead of being a problem that you bring your personal relationships into work or your personal experiences, actually that's an asset that we haven't yet fully learned how to utilize in the workplace. The workplace for a long time, has been too influenced by ideas of industrial workplaces and mechanization and the workplace is supposed to function like a wild machine. And we've encouraged people to leave their personal selves at home. And that's starting to change, and I think all for the better. So as we learn how to bring more of ourselves to work, we actually can benefit ourselves at work by realizing that we're maybe having a reaction to one of our coworkers because that morning something happened at home with one of our kids and we're being reminded of that in the way our coworker is talking to us. And again, this awareness, this is what I meant when I was talking about sometimes it's very uncomfortable to encounter ourselves. There can be a certain discomfort in that moment if you're realizing that, oh, I'm still kind of reverberating with that argument I had with my teenage son before I left for work. It can be uncomfortable, and on the other hand, if you can tolerate a little bit of that kind of discomfort, it can inform what comes next and help you to kind of step back and realize, well, in both cases, this person is talking to me as if I don't know anything and as if I just arrived with no ideas in my own head. So let me see how I can work with that. And probably simply getting angry and asserting you don't know what you're talking about either, is not going to be very helpful. Maybe we both need to move more into that place of, gee, what you're bringing to the table is really different than what I'm bringing to the table. And so often, workplace and otherwise, differences are the places that we snag. As you said, we do get very attached to the way we think. Right, I, I want to jump in here because you're saying a lot and you're saying it a little fast. <laughs> and yeah. I really want you to slow down because... Okay. 
what you're saying is so rich. That's the okay. only reason why I'm asking you to do that. Because I think what you're saying can help so many people to take a step up in their own lives. And what I was just listening and hearing you, that whole personal connection with the decisions that you make at work, and it's a question that I'm going to pose to you. So we're all souls, and every soul is carrying the sum total of their experiences of their life. And as a result of those experiences, it will determine the reason behind their choices, Mm -hmm. the reason behind their decisions. And so they come into a workplace, so when you say to leave the personal issues or your personal self at home, but you're also saying that maybe the company can benefit by the way that you do things at a personal level, as long as it's in alignment with the system of the functioning of the company or department or what have you. So my point is, because we are all souls grappling with the light within the soul and the lack of light within the soul, here we are put in a room of 20 different people all going through the same stuff, trying to figure out who they are, what their worths are. And then you've got a project on the table. And those 20 souls now are supposed to feed into that project to make it a success. It makes it a wonderful drama. There Mm -hmm. could be thrillers, there could be excitement, there could be humor. It's very powerful. And so what would you say would be, if there is, one common tool that we can add to just create the peace in the room or the harmony in the room when we're all working together on the same project, but everyone's going through similar stuff, but nobody's talking about it, and yet the vibration shows it. What is that one common tool that you can lend us that people can start to apply in the workplace? Thank you for noticing that I was talking rapidly and needed to slow down because actually that's what we want to talk about. Think of when people say, well, what tools can you give us? The tool that is like a Swiss army knife is slowing down. By slowing down, you gain access to everything else you need. So the one tool that I teach people is slowing down. So it's interesting that in our conversation, I was forgetting to do that. And you caught that actually we weren't leaving enough space, both for our own thinking process to happen while we're talking. And also we're talking so that other people can join us in conversation later and they won't be able to have enough space to have their thoughts so that their own understanding and their own way of dealing with what we're saying can come to the fore. So I would say the one tool that I would advise people in any conversation is that all of our conversations happen too rapidly. When we're in conversation with each other, rarely is there a pause between speakers, and there needs to be. William Isaacs talks about letting the sounds cascade into silence. And when I say something, I need to hear what I'm saying. You need to hear what I'm saying. And then we need to also have a space to hear it for the second time, to hear it in a new way. And then I need to think about what am I going to say? And I need to be able to hear several possibilities. And if there's no space between speakers, and if we're speaking very quickly, none of that processing can go on. And so we don't actually gain access to the wisdom of the situation. It's We're simply downloading what was already in there, as I said in an earlier idea. Have you ever heard, there was a movie with John Travolta and, uh, what's his name, Williams? Oh, I forgot his name. Anyway, 
It was called Old Dogs, and it was so funny. I remember laughing until I almost turned blue. And there's a saying that says, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. And it's funny, I just said that quote last week. And I'm thinking about it. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Can a person who's 50, 60 years old coming into their awakenings learn how to be a new version of themselves? Or should they give up all hope and just deal with what they've got? No, totally. You know, that's maybe the question that people ask me the most, especially people coming to me with problems that they're somewhat in despair about. So often I hear people say, you know, can people really change? And of course we really change. We learn all the time. I think partly we ask the question and partly we have this old dogs can't learn new tricks idea. From an old idea of what the brain is, till the last couple of decades, the idea of the brain was that it changes a lot, kind of age zero to 12, and then maybe there's some revision around adolescence. And then, you know, starting around 20 years old, we've got, and from then on, it's all downhill, and we're simply losing neurons. But that's not the new brain. That's not the brain we now understand from neuroscience that we have, and there's this term neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. I think by Richard Davidson, which means that our brain is kind of infinitely changeable, right? As long as we're alive, right into our seventh and eighth and ninth decade, our brains are constantly changing and remaking themselves in response to every moment of experience. So not only can we change, we do change all the time. And in fact, in order to not change, some effort is required. And so the idea that when there's a conflict in a situation, sometimes one person will say, well, that's just who I am. If you step back from that, you realize, no, that's who you were a minute ago, and Mm -hmm. now you're somebody different. And so in each moment, we're changing and developing, and that's who we are. Our brains are the organ that's kind of infinitely responsive and capable of change. And of course, mm. our brain is not just what's located in our cranium, it's our whole being. Mm. And it's changing all the time. Yeah, I like that. And, very optimistic. and I would say also that when it comes to learning, what's important is to understand that and to understand how to guide your own learning. So for yeah. instance, the thing of slowing down, if I'm going more slowly in a conversation, I'm more likely to learn from it and more likely to figure out how to learn from what you say, from what I'm saying even. Yes. And so. And you'd be a much better listener too. Yes, learning to yeah. learn is, is We're much better fun. listeners when we're slower. So thank you for all of your wonderful words of wisdom. I really appreciated our time together. And maybe before we close, I think sometimes people just naturally were going to have misunderstandings and people err. I make mistakes in my intention when I speak or maybe I've read something wrong or I just didn't use my discernment at a time of need. Right. And so it teaches me first more than anyone else because of the virtue of honesty that I apply to my personal development. But sometimes not everybody's in that same cup of tea and I've still got so much learning to do for me and I'm excited about that actually i've been saying i'm ready to be a completely new version of myself a better version of god's child and i'm looking so forward to seeing how that's going to emerge through me soon so 
sometimes mistakes occur in interactions with you at the workplace, with interactions with you in the family, with interactions with you and your next door neighbor. Can those challenges actually become an opportunity to strengthen us? Yeah, absolutely. This thing of learning that goes on throughout our lifetime, I think the most important things that we learn and need to learn, we learn in our relationships. And that is where our learning goes on. So when people are commenting to themselves, as we often do, about how difficult relationships are, that we sometimes make the mistake of thinking the relationship is difficult because somebody's broken. There's something wrong with me, something wrong with you, something wrong with the relationship. And I would turn that around and say, no, relationships are hard because that's where we're doing most of our most important learning. If you think about it, my ability to be open to you depends on my developing my patience, my generosity, listening skills, which are some of the hardest skills. And so all of these very important learnings that go on throughout life happen most intensely when we're trying to make this important connection with another human being. And I think really the place that we are in our evolution as human beings now is trying to knit together the pieces. And that depends a lot on being capable of this thing of discomfort when you encounter yourself. And tolerating that is all what sets us up for this very rich learning that will happen in these scratchy, uncomfortable encounters that we have with each other. Yeah, it's funny, you know, Catherine, I think relationships are actually very easy. And I think they're wonderful and they're sweet and smooth. Once you do everything I say, I don't see a problem with the relationship. The moral of the story is that actually relationships are really easy. And they're such a blessing to have. I just think I need to love and have a very deep understanding of who I am and what I am. And and perhaps if God were looking at me right now, how would he like me to be in this moment? And I think if we could just bring that into play, God, the world would be so beautiful with people just advocating such beautiful behavior that it will just be heaven. It will just be heaven. Listen, you've been a delight, and we've gone even over our time because you've been so good. And I cannot end today without you telling us where our viewers and listeners can find more information about your exquisite work. And I'm hoping to have you back on air for us to go deeper into our conversation in the future. Many, many blessings, and thank you so much for offering what you did today. Thank you. So your listeners can find me. Almost all of the things that I do will be located on my website, which is katherinefordmd.com. And part of what they'll see there is that I do a lot of my teaching through Stanford Continuing Studies Program. And so every quarter I offer a course, sometimes for couples, sometimes for all people in, in relationships or even not in relationships that are looking for a relationship. So my teaching appears on the Stanford Continuing Studies website. Those are the two main places to find what I do. And I have a manuscript in progress. Soon there will also be a book that they can go to, and I'll be talking about that at some point in the future. Depends on everything you're doing. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Sister Jenna. Mm. Everyone, you took a lot away from this one, didn't you? I'm sure you did. You know, one of the things we want more than anything else is just to get along with each other. And we've talked about friendship, the workplace, our personal issues today. We've looked at what steps we can actually take 
to create more harmony within each other and for each other, but also the ability to be curious, curious to learn more about another person and to be excited to actually develop more because of your ability to hear them from the heart and to be able to bring more aperture, more heart into your present moment in time, but also into your future. Nowadays, all the answers are there. I know we're one of many programs and shows that are giving techniques and ideas and directions of how to be. And all we have to do is to listen with that heart and to listen with that interest and to stay stable and consistent. And you'll see everything for you will change. And life will just become a much better experience. Even through your challenging moments, your soul will be okay. So take this time. Play this over again and again if you need to. Dive deep into your moments of silence and stillness and listen. 